to another Outbreak podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland, and some deep dives into more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basic responder, and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. Today joining me is Andy Elwood. Andy started his career in the armed forces, deploying as a paramedic to Afghanistan during Operation Herrick, before moving into the world of search and rescue as a winch paramedic. However, it's his work since then that is our focus today, and the help he brings to hundreds of emergency services personnel up and down the country, trying to grow a culture of understanding around mental health. Welcome, Andy. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So I guess the obvious first question is, why you? Why mental health? Why mental health for me? Gosh, I suppose over a 20-year career, I've realized that not initially, but after a period of time when I thought I was really resilient and mental health was something other people had difficulties with, after a few incidents in my career, I realized that it can affect anyone depending on the type of incident that they're attending, depending on what else is going on in their life. And I suppose a cumulative effect of number of jobs, number of incidents, life experience, outside work, as well as at work. So it's not all necessarily about trauma, which is often what pre-hospital clinicians associate these kind of difficulties with. So from personal experience, talking about how I felt and how these incidents and experiences were affecting me. Talking about it has really helped me in three major incidents in my life. And I'm just trying to pass that experience on to others and help them through their career and their life back to performing at their best and enjoying life again. I guess it's fairly common across pre-hospital practitioners and the emergency services. We're not very good at talking about stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right there. I think it's changing. It is changing and slowly a lot of the stigma is being broken down slowly. And that's through conversations happening on the front line, conversations happening at conferences, on social media. It's becoming much more acceptable. But certainly from the background I have and the experience I have, a predominantly male environment of roughy, tufty, hairy, big fellas. Most people in that environment, they want to show their strength, not any weaknesses. Talking about things like this, maybe in their own head, more so than it actually is, may be perceived as a weakness. So there may be fear, stigma, self-stigma was a massive thing for me. And we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later on. But these are all things that prevent people from talking and just showing any chink of weakness. Whereas when I've rocked up in places, just been open and honest, created some safety and trust with sharing some of my experiences, people can't wait to talk about, oh, that's me as well. That happened to my best mate, my partner, you know, my brother, my brother-in-law. And it's all bubbling under the surface. People are under so much pressure, even before this current prolonged major incident, if you want to call it, that COVID-19 is for us at the moment, which it just seems to have exacerbated things and heightened emotions, tensions, anxieties much more than normal. 
it's interesting talking about you rocking up. The first time I came across you was turning up with your Land Rover and almost using that as a tool <laughs> to try and get folk talking, which to a, a mountain rescue audience is, <laughs> is, is a good familiar subject to start from. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll try to do it in different ways. Now, the, the Land Rover has a very personal story to me. I don't know if we have time to get into that. It would be good to, yeah, just take us through the basics of it. Okay, so five years after I was in Afghanistan as a Mert paramedic on the battlefield rescue helicopter in the Air Force out there, five years after then, I was in a really good place in my life. I got married again. I was in holiday in France. My job with the Coast Guard when I'd left the Air Force, that was working out well. Really good place. And we were going hiking in the Alps and a little bit of climbing in the summer. Beautiful day. Jumped in the shower of a morning before we went out for the day. And suddenly I found myself back in Afghanistan with a patient trapped in a Land Rover after an IED attack. And I could feel the weight of my body armor on me. I could feel the heat of the Afghanistan sun, so plus 50 degrees. I could feel sand on my skin. I could feel my heart beating in my chest, my respiration rate rising. And I felt the pressure to save this man's life that was in front of me, trapped in the Land Rover, as well as the threat to my own life. So typical bloke, thinking I can fix it. I get the water on the cold to try and cool myself down. Close my eyes. I can still see this guy. I'm not cooling down. I can still feel the 50 degree plus heat of the day, even with the cold water. Scrub and scrub at my skin. I can still feel the sand on my skin. So I had to get out of there. Towel wrapped around me out of the shower I got. And before I knew it, I was on top of my wife in this tiny apartment in the Alps we were staying in. And she knew immediately that something was wrong. What's happened in there? What's, what's going on? What's, what's happened to you? And I was still trying to process what was going on for me. I knew this must be some kind of flashback. Very real experience, very scary. I'd never had anything like this before. So it was a real job I'd attended, but I had thought about it since, but it hadn't ever bothered me like this. So I thought, why me? Why now? All these things running through my head. Have I got PTSD? Is this the end of my flying career? Is this the end of my career full stop? What will my wife think if I tell her this? Will this be the end of my marriage? So a lot of dilemmas. Am I going to talk about this or not? But I knew talking to someone previously after a traumatic incident had helped me before. So I thought I will speak to her. We already had the safety and trust built up. She listened carefully that day. She didn't judge and she didn't try and fix me. And it really helped me to talk about what had happened. And do you know what? It was fine. The world didn't stop turning. I felt an awful lot better. It dialed down all my fears, worries, anxieties that day about what had just happened and what the future might hold. And it took me a few days to go back in that shower, I can tell you. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> want to climb back in there in case it happened again, but I made sure it went in before the end of the week and I haven't had another flashback since. And the way I've processed that is because... I had relaxed and recovered from all the things that had gone on in Afghanistan, a divorce, changing job, moving house, et cetera, et cetera, when I came back. I was finally relaxed enough that my brain could process this traumatic incident into a memory that I was able to deal with. The flashback was part of that, but because I talked about it and got it in the open, I dialed everything else down and I haven't got PTSD and I haven't had any flashbacks since. 
and Jill Morton, who I'm sure you guys are well aware of, does some fantastic work in Lifeline Scotland. She's heard me speak and we've delivered some training together and done some work together. And she's backed me up and said, yeah, you've just been relaxed enough to process that memory and talking about it is actually what you needed. It's a really healthy thing to do. So gosh, I was supposed to be telling you about the Land Rover. So that was my Land Rover flashback. So when my father died a few years later, he and I most bonded working on old vehicles, driving old vehicles together. He left me a little bit of money and thought I'm gonna buy a classic car again. What'll I buy? And I decided to buy a Land Rover so that I can have a positive Land Rover experience instead of a negative flashback experience. So it was just for me, the Land Rover. It's really simple, 1973, two and a quarter litre petrol for the geeks out there. It's a short wheelbase. And it was just for me to tinker with and have something to do. And it's grown arms and legs. And indeed, use that as a vehicle to travel around, start conversations, especially with men. Most of them stick their head in and have a sniff and say, yeah, I remember. That's what they smelt like. And it just starts a conversation, like you said. Most guys, if you ask them, would you like to talk about well-being and mental health? You know, you get the hand, talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. I'm fine. I'm okay. I don't need to do that. But they'll rock up and they'll talk. They'll ask me about this Land Rover, create the safety and trust, and then we have a real conversation. So that's what the journey was about last year, over 2,000 miles to help the introduction of the UKSR Wellbeing and Resilience Framework. And that was first introduced by Scottish Mountain Rescue out of all the UK SAR organisations. So it's a pleasure for me to assist with the introduction of that brilliant initiative. And great to meet so many responders around the world. <laughs> it's been hugely talked about within Mountain Rescue. I just want to pick up on one thing you said there, which it shouldn't be a surprise, but it always is, that you weren't talking to somebody with any training or experience or yeah. any particular understanding. It was just talking to somebody that you trust and you get on with exactly and that's key so the previous experience i had was speaking to a psychiatrist after a traumatic incident back on search and rescue quite early in my career and that was really an instant cure for me you know like a click of the fingers because that highly trained person with loads of experience relaxed me created safety and trust and explained that my reactions were totally normal to this extraordinary incident or event that I've been a part of. But it doesn't have to be someone that has a lot of clinical training, just has to be someone that you trust. And you've picked out the key part of that, which when I'm doing a presentation face-to-face to an audience, I bring out, and that's that most of us in pre-hospital care We don't want to share how we're feeling with loved ones, with people that aren't fellow clinicians, have a similar experience, because we maybe don't want to burden them or else we think they won't get it and they won't understand. Now, that's a barrier as well for a lot of people talking. We need to knock that down. Certainly, the key is really that the person that you choose to talk to about whatever's going on in your life, that you've got safety and trust with them. You trust them. And the things that they need to do to listen well, to help communicate the empathy, let you get it out and feel safe, is they need to have that safety and trust. They need to listen carefully and not to give any judgment. And the key thing to give them confidence and to relax people if they're listening to someone else is you don't have to fix the person. You don't have to fix the problem. You just have to listen. So it's not about you if you're listening. It's about the other person got two ears, one mouth, 
use them in that proportion. Use the two ears and let the other person speak most of the time. There's going to be silences as people are processing things. I know uh, another occasion I shared something with someone and as soon as I'd said something like I hadn't been sleeping well for two to three years, I thought, what an idiot. Why have I not sought help about this before? And sometimes saying things out loud actually allows us to admit what's going on to ourselves. And often we know the solution. We don't need anyone else to tell us. Once we've spoken it out loud, it seems to label it, dial it down and allow us to find a way forward. It's interesting. I guess some of the reticence that I've certainly felt in the past has been that you don't want to become that person who's sort of banging on about a job that everybody else has done and, and packaged up and moved on from. Mm. That always acts as a, as a bit of a barrier because folk, I guess, process things at different spaces and have their own interpretation of what's happened. Exactly. And two clinicians, two responders can go to the same job and they'll have two very different experiences, maybe because of the role they had in the incident, maybe because of the connection they had to the patient, maybe because of something they did, something they didn't do, something they misunderstood, something they felt they could have done better. Some of the time people get a bit of a guilt as well because they're okay. And I've had people say, you know, is there something wrong with me? People were really affected by that incident and I'm actually okay about it. And people are resilient and people are amazing. They're really great. And it's often no accident that people are well and can endure or last a long career. And that's often because they've got their well-being sorted. They're taking care of the basics for themselves on a, a daily, regular basis. So each incident will be different for different people and the longer people's careers and the more we get used to talking about these events the more that people realize that and as Jill Morton will say it's usually it's the one thing that you're trying to hide you're trying to not think about you're trying to not engage with you're trying to cover up that's exactly the thing you need to address pay a little bit of attention to talk to someone about it get it off your chest dial it down to a manageable level and move on and continue with your career and the great work that you're doing. I'd kind of jotted down before we started talking a few things to kind of cover off. And one of them was about healthy coping strategies. And I guess we've sort of covered that in a sense, but what are the unhealthy coping strategies? What do you see that folk do that we really shouldn't? Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of stuff going on at the moment in social media that people are doing a lot of recycling. The recycling level seems to be upped during lockdown. Have you noticed that at all? Yeah. 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 One of the unhelpful coping strategies people often turn to is, is maybe drinking a bit more, maybe smoking a bit more, maybe taking more caffeine, more tea, whatever your particular vice is, Red Bull. We have unhelpful coping strategies. We want to find helpful coping ones. And for a lot of people, that's exercise. And that's great. Now, at the moment, we're still allowed to get an hour's exercise a day. But that's often the first one that people turn to. So it's great to have other ones to rely on. And they're particularly important at the minute when we've limited resources. And maybe people can't get to the gym, can't get out to the high-level hills that they're used to especially up in beautiful Scotland. So there's other ones to be aware of. There's five a day for positive mental health or for mental strength. 
One, which is proven difficult at the minute, is connection. I'd say that's the most important one. Have connection to other people, to your friends, other humans. If people are stuck at home, whether if they need to isolate because they've got symptoms, if they're not able to do their normal responder role, they're separated from their work colleagues, they're maybe separated from their family, other people they normally interact with. So having those video calls, keeping in touch on social media, using your mobile, your laptop, that's all really good right now to continue that connection. Being active is number two. So getting our hours exercise outside if we can, that's great. Physical health and mental health are really closely connected. But also there's research now shows that moderate physical exercise three times a week is as good or better for mild, moderate depression, actually better for it than antidepressants. So number three would be taking notice or being mindful. Again, not very macho for a lot of guys and a lot of people misinterpret this and think they need to sit on the floor burning incense with their eyes closed and their legs crossed for extended periods of time. On my tour last year in the Land Rover, I was talking about how my mindfulness is often working on the landing, sorting out the latest problem with the fuel or the electrics, what could it be this time? And you're just really zoning out from everything else, all the emails, the bills, the pressures, the relationship issues that's going on, and just concentrating your focus on something else. One of the teams who visited, they had someone who said, when I'm feeling a bit stressed, I go whitewater canoeing. And people were horrified. They said, that's the last thing I'd be doing if it was stressed and drowned. And he said, well, I have to be so focused or I will have a problem. So that's what really helps me forget everything else. Some people use running. Other people love to just watch nature, pay attention to the birds. This time of year is great with the changing in the veggie patch in the garden with the trees, with the animals we're seeing really taking back their environment at this time of year. It's fantastic. So that's taking notice, just being in the moment and enjoying the moment. Einstein said, you can choose to see everything in life as a miracle or nothing at all as a miracle. And I choose, like Einstein, to see everything as a miracle. That's really turned things around for me when I was really low a couple of years ago, just noticing those little things. So fourthly, we would have keep learning, which keeps your mind active. It's finding a challenge that you'll enjoy completing. Fix something at home when you're stuck at home. You might have to YouTube it, find out how to do it. You're learning something new. You're being engaged with something. You're focusing in the moment. It's great. And that's a way to combine too. And finally, which responders are really good at anyway, is give. Look out rather than in. So we've had some focus on ourselves. Now we're looking out and it ties in well with connecting with other people, giving something of yourself. And it may be as simple as giving a smile saying thank you. People talk about Thursday night, 8 p.m., going outside and clapping, making noise for the NHS and our essential workers. You know, that's just fantastic and they feel so good about it. Going outside, connecting with other people, being part of a community and saying thank you, making some noise. It's strange, isn't it? That has had an enormous effect on responders. They have told me that. It's just people in the community as well. They feel so good after that. So those are the five a day for positive mental health. Connect, be active, take notice, keep learning and give. If you can do those on a daily basis, you'll keep yourself well and that'll help you be resilient for this marathon rather than a sprint. Absolutely.
yeah, the concept of trying to hold that resilience and build it is key and something that we probably don't do enough training on, given that that's ultimately what's going to turn us from flaming wrecks into long-term practitioners. Yeah, it's a lot of simple stuff actually works. So whenever I deployed Afghanistan, people say, oh, that's far more scary than this. You know, and it's not at a lot of preparation time before I left and deployed, worked on my tactical skills, worked on my clinical skills, all sorts of skills, increased my fitness, really put a lot of preparation into it before I got out there. We've just all been dropped into this mess, haven't we? We've been parachuted in with no warning, almost, no training, almost, and we're just making the best of what we've got and getting through. The resilience, I think, rather than it's not just enduring something, it's recharging. It's having the ability to recharge, and that's what will keep you going in the long term. So using those five a day on your downtime between shifts, or even when you're on shift, connecting with your partner, connecting with other people you're working with, getting some exercise on your time off, having a little bit of mindfulness, maybe fixing something, keeping learning, doing something new renewing an old interest and giving something back those help you to recharge yourself just like we'd recharge our phone we need to recharge our own batteries and sleep's a massive part of that as well i was going to come on to that and sort of look at what are the red flags what should we be looking out for i guess well that's really interesting and when we're talking about helpful coping strategies just to think about our stress container we've got a lot of things going on inputs into that in normal 21st century life and now we've got covid as well so opening a tap to release some space in that stress container is great and we hope those are helpful coping strategies like i've mentioned to you the five a day and talking But if it gets too full and we're not able to do that, maybe there's some of the red flags coming up. We may be more irritable. We're not sleeping well. We're not concentrating well. We're making mistakes. We maybe notice weight change in people because we're eating more and we're not eating well at all. We're maybe taking less care in our appearance. And we're more snappy. We're putting up more walls. We're maybe becoming withdrawn. So each one of us will have little red flags or a stress signature, something that we're showing, maybe something we notice ourselves or someone close to us will notice. And if you can take a few minutes and just think about what those are so that you can envy them and when you start noticing them or someone close to you does think, maybe I need to pay some more attention to my helpful coping strategies, keep myself well for the marathon, keep my resilience up there, help me to recharge. So for me, you know, sometimes I feel a bit irritable and maybe feel some anger building up about all sorts of different things. And either I've got a punch bag outside, I find is really helpful for me or else to go for a mountain bike ride. And, you know, my wife notices as well. If I say, oh, I think of it, I'm going to go for a mountain bike ride at the weekend. She'll say, yeah, I think you should too. That would do. That would do us both good. So having an honest conversation with your partner or someone close to you can maybe help identify these red flags, as you call them, or your stress signature so that you can step in. And just like in physical health, as in mental health, early recognition has a better outcome. Prevention is better than cure. We can all have little dips with major pressures in our life. At the moment, it's almost a perfect storm, isn't it? these things are more likely to happen. So paying some attention, just learning a bit more about yourself and noticing that will stand you in good stead to endure this crisis that we're currently in. 
I guess to finish, well, it seems bad to finish on a sort of negative tone, but what about when things have got to the point where the stuff that you can do yourself isn't working? So I think talk there, really. Talk is what you need to do. You need to reach out. So even if someone is having thoughts of suicide, they've got this such a place where they think there's no hope. I turned that around. I said, there always is hope. Even thoughts of suicide, if someone gets there, or if you've had those thoughts yourself, those are common thoughts. 20% of the normal population have admitted that they've had thoughts of suicide. 25% of emergency responders have had thoughts of suicide. So it's surprisingly common. But those thoughts are temporary. They will pass, and we don't have to act on them. If someone does talk to you about suicide or mention end in their life or there's no reason to go on, any kind of thoughts, themes like that, don't ignore it. It's a total myth that someone that talks about it won't do it. Creating the safety and trust to have an open, honest conversation, very transparent about suicide, making it okay to talk about suicide will save lives. And it does save lives. It's proven. Yeah, and that's my major motivator now. I think I'm going to save more lives through this work rather than dangling under a helicopter as a paramedic still. Three quarters of every suicide are men in the UK and it's still the number one killer of men under 50 in the UK. So not heart attack, strokes, cancer, RTCs, any other health conditions, it's suicide. So the more we can get men to talk about this, make that okay the more lives we can save, the more lives we can improve. So there's always hope. Dave, please let's end on a high. There is always hope. And reaching out and talking, although it seems a massive thing to do, that is a first step to getting another perspective, to getting some control back, to finding a way forward. And research that's been completed down in England and Wales for the Mind Blue Light program showed that almost unanimously anyone in the emergency responder community who spoke out, they were really surprised and felt supported by the reaction from their colleagues when they talked about how they were feeling and how stressed they were or difficulties they were having with their mental health. I think that's certainly true. We underestimate how universal this is and how much all of us are affected by the same stuff. Absolutely. I was delivering some training recently to guys who have long military service and delivering flying training for the MOD. And when I was open and shared some of the experiences I've had that I've shared today in this podcast, the reaction was fantastic. I hadn't delivered to such an audience before, and I was really impressed. So many guys, especially some of the older ones, came up and said, I wish we had something like this 20 years ago. I wish somebody had told me this at the start of my career. And when you become attuned to it, you can see it in people, the look in their eyes, when they're quiet, when they look away. But guys were coming up and giving me great feedback that they wish they'd had it before. So I think you're absolutely right. It's rife throughout the emergency services. We're under so much pressure before this crisis. So Now we can really support each other. It's fantastic. Basics are putting out messages like this. I'm so grateful to be invited to come on and have a chat with you. Please look after each other, support each other, check in with each other. It's okay to talk about these issues and you'll feel better for doing it. You really will. I guess just to round up, 
we've been getting all of our presenters to give us kind of three takeaway top tips for basics responders and just interested to see what your take on that would be. So it's three really simple things for me. The basics work. That's what's always helped me in my career. One, put your own oxygen mask on first. That's not selfish. That's giving you a self-focus. That's looking after you so that you can look after others, whether that's your close family, your colleagues, or your patients. Use the five a day that I've explained in the podcast to look after your own mental health and well-being and produce mental strength on a daily basis. And finally, it's okay to talk. Share how you're feeling. Label those expressions, those feelings, those emotions, and that will help them dial down and you'll feel better. Andy, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to chat to us and for being so honest with us. I know we're going to put up a link to some of the stuff that you've done and to your website. And I can only sort of wholeheartedly endorse the fact that I know you've done great things within the mountain rescue community. And and I think there's something there for everybody to take away. Thank you very much. And can I just say thank you to everyone that's part of Basics. It's a fantastic organization, fantastic bunch of responders giving more there. And thank you so much for being on the front line and looking after us all at this very, very try and test and difficult time. Stay well and go well. You too. Take care, Andy. Thank you. Cheers.